0: This is the Saxo Market Call, daily insights on what is moving the financial markets. Hello and welcome to the special edition of the Saxo Market Call podcast, Outrageous Predictions for 2023. This is not very time-sensitive material, but we are recording this on Wednesday, 14th of December, ahead of the FOMC meeting. Uh, So this year, and if you're not familiar with the Saxo Outrageous Predictions, perhaps a little intro here to what it's all about. It's our yearly exercise, and we've been doing this for 20-plus years, in trying to sort of look at the year forward and come up with things that we think are underappreciated in terms of their risk. Still low delta possibilities. Outrageous is, uh, of course, the uh, key word there. Unlikely things to happen, but things that are possible and not impossible, And if they do occur, things that would really change the market reality and change the world. It is, after all, big surprises that do move markets from year to year. Uh, Just look at what the pandemic did in uh, 2020. It was already kind of a foot. uh, Oh, certainly was a foot in China, uh, certainly in Wuhan in late 2019. It was called uh, COVID-2019, after all. But look at what that did to the markets and really the subsequent environment. And some of that subsequent environment is uh, still what's leading to this year's predictions. So without further ado, let's let's launch into the theme for this year's prediction. and I have with me Peter Garnery, our quantum equity strategist, who's a, a big contributor to this year's predictions as well. Um, so Peter, our our theme this year is the war economy. And actually it's kind of ironic because every year we kind of try to find some sort of organizing principle. For the outrageous predictions, so that they sort of fit together in some way shape or so uh just so I don't go into too long a monologue, what's your you had a great summation, and we did a little promo video of what the war economy is about, and i'll I'll dive into a couple of details, but why let's 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 tell listeners why the war economy is the backdrop for this year's outrageous predictions
1: well <clears throat> I think the the war economy is a is a very good theme and narrative that sort of ends the end of globalization that has taken place over 40 years, which can be described as this happy marriage between the US uh, and to some extent China and Russia um, and and Europe. So with with Russia delivering cheap energy and and, and metals, uh, the dollar as a reserve currency, uh, moving manufacturing to China, helping China moving out of poverty, they produce cheap goods, push down inflation. that caused low interest rates, high wealth. Everyone was just happy, and now we have this uh, this divorce, and uh, mom and dad I- I- are no longer happy. <laughs> <laughs> and and I, I, and I think that you know the whole war economy is sort of the pivot point in history where we we sort of move to a new phase or a new state uh, of affairs, and 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 we're moving from this con- belief in convergence of ideas and globalisation to a more multi or or dual uh dual world with different different value systems. And 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 I like it as well, John, because we—I mean—the the war economy—it's it, such a powerful framework because we we have had so many wars in in throughout history, and all wars have always caused inflation, turmoil, upheaval, uh, new new trajectories for societies, and 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 that I think really is what this outlook is all about.
0: Yeah. And, oh, and
1: sorry, outrageous predictions is outbound.
0: <clears throat> yeah, yes, important. yeah, important. Yeah, it's important to say that our for- our outrageous predictions are not our baseline forecast. They're a series of events we think are possible, but not impossible, and really meant to provoke thought. But I don't think the war economy idea at all. The framework is outrageous at all. And if uh, by the way, of course, the link uh, there is a link to a series of slides that you can follow along for each of the ten outrageous predictions that we have. Find that link in the podcast description. Uh, i'll hopefully also have a link up to a full long form uh, video we did with a series uh, of people who signed up for that our clients and otherwise many hundreds online for that one that was that was a great conversation we had there as well so find that link you get a full sort of more full form and there's more of the team there that just uh, me and peter but on slide um on the slide two of to the slide deck we have of the outrageous predictions you can see all the different parts of what are sort of wrapped up in this whole war economy framework and it's It's all the way from the supply chains, Um, the fragility of those that was made so clear by the pandemic, Uh, whether it was simply that uh, factory workers were ill or not able to go to work, so they weren't producing stuff. Meanwhile, we're giving everybody stimulus checks to buy stuff that couldn't be produced. So inflation obviously went up on that. But also the discovery that that even things like uh, simple chips, much less high-tech semiconductor chips are at pinch points, and they're all too unacceptably concentrated in a production area in Taiwan, especially at the higher end. The way that Taiwan sits at the sort of tension between the U.S. and China, totally unacceptable. We're seeing the U.S. move with the biggest industrial policy move with this CHIPS Act. Really, since World War II, we've seen a similar move in Europe. So that's the supply chain side for sort of components and higher tech goods. It's very comprehensive. There are many steps along the way uh, for almost any uh, high-tech product and even less high-tech products. And then there's these sort of the basic uh, access to uh, resources, things, uh, very key things like energy and natural gas, which the Russian invasion of Ukraine made so clear. There is a huge scramble afoot, particularly for Europe, the most vulnerable uh, geography on the specific delivery of Russian supplies to replace those with something else. That is a war economy move. That is going to be expensive. It means inflation. Supply chain, increasing the robustness instead of hyper-tuning to just-in-time and and, uh, wherever the cheapest component can be made, that's also expensive. Um, And then on the flip side, those that are not uh, welcome in the world of uh, dollar financing or outside of the U.S. or Western, whatever you want to call it, Security Alliance do not like the idea that their financial system could be made a victim of the weaponization of the U.S. dollar. So there's a financial insecurity there that they need to worry about. Can we operate if suddenly the West decides to shut down our access to our reserves, as was the case with Russia? What if Saudi does something, goes a little bit over the line with one of its moves that has geopolitical implications? Will the U.S. start to throw its weight around there? Uh, Similar for China, which I'm sure finds itself as a great power, that it does not want to be susceptible to the same types of moves. That requires a huge new rearrangement of potentially of trade flows and what currency those trade flows are transacted in. We have an outrageous prediction for that with a potential reserve currency co- competitor out there. And then, Peter, we have the ESG angle. I'll let you go through that one as well as the national security angle uh, on all of this.
1: Yeah, the uh, the ESG angle is uh, is in, is interesting because it's uh, it's part of what actually causes to be in this predicament on on energy infrastructure. Um, causing low investments in in baseload and energy infrastructure um, and now we now we're facing all the uh, all the fallouts from 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 that and and i also i mean when we talk about esg it's going to be super important i think going forward uh, in terms of politics and and it will be used i think increasingly by the west to to argue and justify different types of policies against china Look at China; it's the biggest uh, CO two emitter in the world. We will do something about that. So I think that will be used as an excuse. Yeah, exactly. The carbon emissions you're pointing at that. You know, we we know the EU is working on a carbon uh, carbon tax, uh, border at, uh, tax, um, border tax cause, yeah. exactly, uh, and that's of course is a very nationalistic mercantilistic uh, approach to defend your own industries. And you can you can argue that from the green angle, and thereby you're pleasing both the right and the left wing voters <laughs> in 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 Europe. I think it's a very powerful. Very powerful of conversions of ideas, actually, to have a, a fight with a common, uh, com- con- common enemy. And then the whole national security. I think this whole idea, John, behind a war economy is also this concept that China has been talking about for years. Ever since actually Xi Jinping rose to power in China, uh, self-reliance. So you have to c- create closed ecosystems of energy, raw materials, uh, critical uh, technology components. So and 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 also and and also you know monetary systems so and that's why we think that you know can China and Russia live with the with the dollar reserve system as it is? Will they try to to move in a new direction and create something different? Because you you cannot be too vulnerable if you want to have maximum strategic flexibility as a country. You can never end up in a situation where you're too dependent on a foe that probably isn't your friend in after all in the end. So it and
0: adds. there's also the U.S. security umbrella. How safe is that over time? Uh, We have an outrageous prediction on that, the EU creation of what we call the EU army, because Europe has been sort of operating with very low defensive budgets, assuming that that U.S. security umbrella, which has been there since the end of World War II, will remain in place. I think the Trump era was a big sort of uh, generational shocker in the direction of, oops, what if this uh, rug is pulled out from under this uh, in this aspect? And of course, it was doubled down and and raised by an order of magnitude by the actual reality of a hot war on the ground on Europe's borders and Ukraine with Russia invading. Um, so, yeah, I think there's definitely the the sense of a need to increase national security spending and defense spending, which has fallen <laughs> a lot, uh, certainly on a percentage of GDP basis around the world. Even the number one spend of the U.S. is spending vastly less as a percentage of its economy than it was in the Cold War days. Uh, a, a huge issue there for national security. Just today, we see the Danish, the new government is just forming. Actually, a couple of hours ago, they're out announcing that they're going to raise their uh, defense spending by uh, by a, a considerable amount and bringing it up to that two percent target. That I think we're
1: going to double it in Denmark. Yeah, which is around
0: two percent of yeah. GDP would be a doubling, and that would be two percent of GDP. So uh, we're not going to run through every single one of these predictions. I think there's a great little uh, illustration that comes with each one. We have a fabulous artist that creates these. We have a, a back and forth uh, process with getting the, the right art for each one. Uh, so we have a slide with the the art for each uh, prediction, a little headline, and a couple of points. It's sort of uh, you, you can you can read through yourself, but I think the of course the original text as well will re- supply a link to that of the original pub- publication. But um, just to pick out a couple, Peter, let's let's talk about the two that you wrote. Uh, the one being this idea of a Manhattan Project uh, for energy, such a critical aspect of what's going on, particularly here in Europe, and this whole issue around baseload and the desire to get off of fossil fuels. So, what, what's the whole Manhattan Project for energy? Uh, Prediction we have here.
1: I think the uh, the billionaire coalition uh, to do a trillion dollar Manhattan project is coming out of the idea, an idea we have come back to a couple of times actually uh, in our team, but also in previous outrageous predictions. This this enormous wealth and income concentration we have on a scale or in par with what we probably had back in the nineteen twenty eight before the 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 Great Depression and the and the stock market collapse. And when you have such a high concentration and you have very low. Basic research uh, among governments—it's very natural that you know the private sector steps in, and I don't think there is a bigger problem ahead of us. Of course, yes, the the whole realignment geopolitically and you know, the war in Ukraine is important, but the but I think the the most fundamental problem we have in the world today is our energy infrastructure. We simply forgot about how you create robust energy systems. And we were so we were chasing the 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 climate change again so much um that we we simply forgot this notion about the base load, right? And and that's <laughs> the yeah and you're laughing and but it, it is a serious problem. And it's the problem we're facing in Europe that yes, solar and wind can be part of the solution, but it can never be the total solution because you need the base load to stabilize energy prices and stabilize the grid. Super important. And the argument is then, oh, we can do green hydrogen. Yes, we can also do green hydrogen. That will be some of it. But the economics and the energy equation is that we lose a lot of energy in that conversion from this excess wind into green hydrogen. So we need something else. We need a next generation nuclear power. We probably also need fusion power. We just got a very incredible news uh but as you also said john you were quick to say it's a nice it's a nice experiment uh done by the u.s government uh but i'm still betting my money on the private sector and and i think that that actually goes to this idea that all the innovation we have seen also these next
0: generation yeah, uh, that's my favorite one is the small yeah. modular mm-hmm. reactor because the whole problem with, not the whole problem one of the big problems with nuclear power is the very long lead time in getting a plant running you've got to pour endless amounts of concrete it's got to be a giant plant. The small nuclear reactor or small modular reactor is so awesome because the idea is it's small. So, yes, one of them is smaller than a whole plant, but it's factory created. It's, it's something you repeat and you can make once you figure out the design. OK, not a trivial task. That's right. But you can make a thousand of them or 500 or whatever to get, uh, uh, you know, to get this uh, going. Once you've figured out the design rolled out much quicker.
1: Which which is also a very good idea because we you don't want two centralized systems you you, you want a decentralized or fragmented energy infrastructure so because if you build a too oversized nuclear power plant you can just wipe that out in a war and then you're really then you're really in trouble and the irony being John as well that I was writing about Tesla today in my in my in today's equity update um, and and they they seeing the adoption of electric vehicles slowing down in Europe very fast uh, according to Volkswagen and the same is is in China and both Europe and China. Is facing the same type of energy crisis, actually, but for different reasons. And the only being we we cannot deliver a full electrification of society without a massive expansion of electricity, but also energy storage. So, so one thing is the industrialization of nuclear power plants, new technologies for that, the green hydrogen. We talked about that, but also the batteries. And I think here, John, is really uh, is really a subject that you're following quite intensely. And, and yes, we have we have reaped. A lot of success already with the lithium-ion batteries in consumer electronics and now have been extended to passenger vehicles. But the question is whether we probably need a next leapfrog in terms of technology to, to, to get to where we need to go in terms of this whole electrification.
0: Yeah, so just just to emphasize that a lot of stuff is already underway that's it's evolutionarily massive and is going to happen with or without the, the bigger leaps forward You know, nuclear fusion or a small modular reactor probably some years uh, further out into the future. Ways to increase the energy density by using a slightly different chemistry, using silicon instead of graphite for the anode potentially leads to more and doubling the energy density. That would make a massive difference. You could decrease the weight of the vehicle, increase its range a little bit, even at a lighter weight point. You have this... This uh, 24M that's creating these um, these semi-solid sort of a goo that holds the energy rather than than a liquid. In a simpler battery manufacturing process, that could reduce the actual metals needed to make that battery by 80%. So the whole idea that, oh, we can't do this because copper production would have to go up by this much. Well, what if it doesn't? What if they can just improve the tech? And then the solid state, even more revolutionary if they can get this right. There are companies actively working on that. They're under contract or being heavily invested in by the big auto manufacturers. They're already proving their technology, and the the big limitation there is meant to be the number of cycles or the number of times they can recharge the battery. They're demonstrating they can do this multiple hundreds of times. Once they get to a certain level on that, let's say a thousand times, you've got a a game-changing technology because, again, more energy density, but even more so with solid state, the exciting thing is the very quick recharge times, which just completely changes the calculus for the consumer about the uh, rollout of this technology.
1: Before we before we move on to one of your outrageous predictions, or maybe the one you, you think is the most interesting, John, or the most <laughs> fun one, um, I just want to emphasize as well that a sort of a, a secondary effect of a, a trillion dollar Manhattan project and energy revolution is that the energy giants of the past, so Saudi Arabia, basically some of the, a lot of the oil-rich producing countries that are which we, if they are not participating in this potential energy revolution they will be uh, they will be left behind on at uh, uh, on the at the train station and and that could have again a lot of geopolitical consequences and I think Maybe not getting too much into this, but just you know, Saudi Arabia's decisions uh, in OPIC Plus this year is also, I think, a signal of things to uh, that are about to change it in could this be, whole energy landscape.
0: And it could be breathtaking how quickly the demand falls for liquid fossil fuels if we get this electricity production right, because and we electrify the vehicle fleet, because that is a very significant portion of what liquid fossil fuels are used for. Natural gas—that's another issue. It's mm. great for warmth, electricity generation. We're always going to need the fossil fuels for plastics. Plastics are not going away anytime soon, but, but. but But it's just a very interesting space. Things are going to outrageously transform in coming years. Let's not run through all these one by one. But uh, I think there's a great one. Number two, a French president resigning. Macron is in a a bad place. He has no majority to work with. He is totally unable to get his whole reform package through. It was his whole reason for becoming president in the first place. After the elections that that put the parliament in place, he has no power. We are headed back to eventually to another existential crisis politically uh, in Europe. Gold going to $3,000. I'm going to save that one because I think that's related a lot to where we're going on price controls, which I will talk about. We've already talked about the armed forces number four. Uh, The one that gets most pushback, Peter, and this is really Mm -hmm. funny, is the – the our outrageous prediction number five here, a country agreeing to ban all meat production. I think that's the logical extension of uh, shifting <clears throat> attitudes in the younger generation towards uh, humane treatment of animals. Not to mention there could be a technological side of this that we could grow uh, actual protein cells that are really our meat in the laboratory eventually and not have to worry about this being connected to a, a poor mammal's brain and the, the treatment humane, humanity around that. But there's also a climate angle and especially for uh, beef. But have a look at that one the unbrexit referendum another one of my favorites i like that i think it's funny yeah it is funny and it's actually if you the polls show if you were to hold a referendum i think it would be very divisive to do so uh that the the referendum would go in favor of unbrexiting and you look at those people that have to live with brexit it's the young folks and they voted overwhelmingly among the youngest almost 3 to 1 in favor of staying within the union but let's get to number 7 quickly and i'll let you round off with the um with the other uh, outrageous prediction that, that you had, Peter, widespread price controls and are introduced to cap official inflation. We're actually already seeing this, and we have actually seen this in the past uh, in the US under President Nixon. I, I think what happens when when you have an inflation continuing, and I, I think maybe we'll get some disinflation in the new year, but eventually we'll get another round of inflation, partially because actually we need inflation for, uh, the, the, for our very debt-saturated economies to deleverage over time. But at some point, central banks will run out of runway for continuing to increase rates because it'll kill the economy if they do so. And we cannot have an economy that's killed because that'll dry up tax revenue, and that means the sovereign cannot afford its bills. The sovereign must always be able to afford its bills, and it will do so. And it can do so in different ways, suppressing interest rates, suppressing prices, or all of the above. Most likely to be all of the above, and some of the above are already coming into full swing with price controls and energy, uh, windfall taxes, what have you. Look out for this space. Never uh, underestimate the ability of the sovereign to move in and throw its weight around when there is an emergency. I think that's the key message behind the price control and capping official inflation a uh, two-cap official inflation outraged prediction.
1: And that's also why we have the, the goal to 3,000 because it's exactly. it, it's it's a natural way for, for speculators mm-hmm. and, and investors all alike yeah, that could see their savings in some direct or indirect way being confiscated. You can maybe move into that type of safe haven assets
0: and so like for the example being oh yeah oil is going to go to the moon because because we have a very under a bad situation where we've underinvested in the space for for years oil should go to the moon but if it doesn't it could be because the sovereign is in there doing windfall taxes and otherwise to prevent those profits in the industry from being realized in a way that was not possible or not done at least back in the 70s so it's always difficult when you have that heavy hand to know where your profit's going to lie back in the uh the great depression in the u.s It was illegal to even own gold. Uh, Let's hope it never does, it doesn't go that far. And that's, you know, would be one of the things behind gold going to $3,000 as well.
1: But I think also a, a you know a secondary spinoff of that outrageous prediction is the fact that in a war economy the state intervention increases over time, and that's very different from the globalization we've had in the forty years. And uh, and I, I like this idea that actually the past forty years was the anomaly, was the outlier mm. in in recent modern history. Let's say over the past five hundred years, it has been much more normal for governments or the sovereign to to take a very active role in society, allocating resources. And I think. So if you're an investor, I think it's, it's really a paradigm or a narrative to think about that, you know, go with the flow, go where resources are being allocated to by the government it's it's a it's a different framework than what you probably have been used to over the past 40 years where you go with a more you know free market less is fair mindset globalization
0: yeah and then on the uh, alluded to it earlier the idea that those that are uh, concerned most about the weaponization of the US dollar and would like to be able to transact some significant portion of the trade outside of the dollar system to avoid that leverage to to avoid interference could look at creating a new reserve asset we've We've made one where we call it the Bancor, which was the original John Maynard Keynes idea to create this central bank asset in the wake of World War II. The, uh, the U.S. government was not so uh, keen on that one. They preferred to have the U.S. dollar itself because they would have the most power over that, of course. So his idea was shunted to the side in favor of using the dollar under the Bretton Woods uh, framework. But um, some form of this is likely to, to uh, deepen in coming years, even if it, if some of the trade is, is, is still a national currency, let's say some sort of Go- implicitly gold back to yuan we've even aired that sort of possibility before but i think it becomes more interesting if it's something that's agreed on a larger framework especially uh, where there's so much trade transacted and that traditionally has been oil the number one uh, the number one commodity in financial value that, that's traded worldwide and china which is so reliant on that for uh, in, in an import sense so some opec plus russia obviously <laughs> very keen to not be in the dollar system uh, having been badly burned by its the confiscation or at least freezing of its reserves, India sort of sitting somewhere in between all of this uh, as well.
1: I was about to say that because I, I, it it is supposed to be outrageous and and it's not a base scenario forecasting here. But w- what what is the argument for 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 India? Why would why would India go along with this? Uh, because I, I suppose I, I mean if I was India and you also if you look at from a historic perspective, they have always been head to head with with China in terms of you know power uh you know before europe had its renaissance and then its industrial revolution and took over in terms of power and then the u.s came later i'm just i'm not i'm not really sure i understand india and i was i also have been a little bit uh perplexed about India's position on this whole uh, Ukraine. I, I don't, I'm not really sure Hi. I understand it, actually. I'm
0: certainly no expert on India specifically, but we have to remember that this was a country that really tried to insist on autarkic or autarky principle during the Cold War. It didn't want to take sides in the Cold War. It was happy to import Soviet uh, weaponry, not because of any sort of impl- big security alignment with with Russia, but it's even been, or sorry, with the Soviet Union, and it even continues to use uh, Russian of weaponry and its military now. So there's this natural tendency to be a bit more friendly to the U.S. The U.S. is trying to drum up this sort of the, what it calls the Indo-Pacific. Uh, it just feels like it, and we've talked a little bit about this before, that India maybe wants to play, as, to whatever degree it can, both sides of the equation here. It's certainly enjoying some cheap Russian uh, natural resources at this moment in time, whereas uh, Europe is sort of engaging in a, a large-scale self-flagellation by sort of preventing itself from consuming Russian uh, oil and gas now. So I, I think it makes it more likely that something like this actually floats and succeeded if a country like India does get involved. Um, yeah. And then we have the Japan going to a dollar again. I think that one is really just about what if these long rates don't come down and they continue to go higher a because um, quantitative tightening is, is nonsense beyond a certain point. It gets to the point of no return where you have to start doing quantitative easing again, because if you don't, the sovereign can't fund itself and that will happen almost with a guarantee i would say once we get towards the next recession you'll have to see qe coming in again and any stimulus we think is likely to go straight into inflation so that's mostly a bet on the fact that japan is really going to have to look at itself in the mirror if long rates go back higher again uh, and then finally yours uh peter and i like this one because it it looks at an area i think that has been under addressed because you're kind of getting away with murder here these some of these tax havens we've seen it in the past with the panama papers uh, which was especially spectacular because of some of the big names that were involved trying to hide their their income and assets in Panama to avoid paying taxes. But this addresses something that's a little bit more more serious for the average investor potentially, and especially those looking for exposure to private equity. So number 10, tax haven ban kills private equity. What's what's all that what's uh-huh. that all about?
1: Private equity can be many things. So it could be the what we understand as private equity, KKR, et cetera. Carlyle Group, and it could be venture capital as well, hedge funds to some extent. Um, and the, the whole idea is actually something that, as you alluded to, the Pan, uh, the Panama Papers that that showed a couple of years ago that tax avoidance is very systematically used by a lot of entities in the world, uh, wealthy individuals, uh, corporates. And um, the the um, the whole the whole idea is that Europe created this a list of tax jurisdictions that were not in compliance with EU uh, framework. And that is an ongoing process. And, and interestingly enough, in the in the in the wake of the FTX uh, implosion bankruptcy, we now have this whole ongoing potential extrad- uh, extradition from of uh, um, Sam Bankman to the U.S. And he has said he he won't be extradited. And and Bahamas they don't have a deal with the U.S. on this particular matter. But Bahamas is a huge tax haven, <laughs> so maybe all of this can actually be the first test because surely. If the US wants to put out put out you know um a signal here into the market that this this behavior that FTX this direct fraud is not allowed. As as I think the state attorney said yesterday, you're not allowed to do fraud in t shirt and, and shorts in a sunny place. The <laughs> US could say Bahamas, oh, as you said, John, the other day, it's a nice little tax haven you have have down there and we know a lot of US entities are are taking advantage of it as well. But if you're not extraditing this guy to us a prosecution, we can make certain rules that will make your little ecosystem not as valuable as you thought it was. And I'm pretty sure Bahamas will will, will quite quickly, you know, change its tune. And as you said as well, the the, the tax havens are heavily used. And I think it's, um, I can't remember the exact numbers. It is in our um, our outrageous predictions text. But, and it, it goes back to the war economy. So a war is very expensive. So governments will look for, for sources of income. And a very clear uh, source of income is that even, even very mild taxation or a ban on tax uh, havens, uh, and and those flows and in income and wealth would suddenly move from these tax havens back into uh, transparent uh, tax jurisdictions with an appropriate tax rate. It would raise hundreds and uh, hundreds of billions of euros for Europe alone, and could fund a lot of things, you know, infrastructure investments and and and, and the war, etc. So um, I don't think it is quite outrageous. But on the other hand, is it really that outrageous? I mean, it's it is an artifact of globalization. It's a monster we have created, as you said, John. Hasn't really been tackled, and, and
0: even more the more mundane uh, sort of tax haven like behavior. Some of the the big international, especially the U.S. giants, Google, etc., shifting uh, the domicile of where the tax or the value is created from this mm. jurisdiction to that jurisdiction and paying lower taxes uh, than than as a supermarket cashier It's just it's kind of absurd behavior, really. But but yeah, I think it's to flag the risk of what that means for for certain and, and really a whole investment class in the case of private equity if there is a Eureka moment uh, on that front.
1: Yes, exactly. All
0: right. I think that we've uh, actually extended this podcast longer than we intended to, but uh, hopefully you found it uh, interesting. Again, have a look at those links in the podcast description. You've got the the slide deck here with some entertaining, entertaining charts. You've got the link to the original text itself, as well as to that full-length webinar uh, talking about each of these predictions. So, yeah, that's a wrap for uh, for this uh, podcast. So we're just about a wrap for 2022, and it's, let's see what uh, outrageous – developments 2023 brings. All the best, everyone. Till next time. Thanks for listening. This has been the Saxo Market Call. For feedback and questions, reach out to us on Twitter at Saxo Market Call or by email marketcall at saxobank.com.